Hi, I'm Kieran Tracy. And I'm Chris Warburton of End of Days, and we're this week's guests on Metapod. You're listening to Metapod, where we unpack the web's most interesting podcasts and the stories behind them. Hosted by Wendy Morrill and Kevin May. Greetings, everyone, and greetings, Wendy. Hey, Kev, and a warm hello to our dear listeners. Indeed, welcome to Metapod, where we unpack the world's greatest podcasts and the stories behind them. Indeed, we do. And this week, we again welcome back a previous guest. In fact, our first ever guest at Metapod, Chris Warburton of the BBC's Radio 5 Live. That's right. Nick Hilton came back in episode 31 to talk about the follow-up to his first podcast, The Town That Didn't Stare, from episode 4, with his new one known as The Town That Knew Too Much. And back when we first spoke to Chris about his podcast, Ecstasy, The Battle of Rave, we asked if he'd return someday to discuss an earlier podcast that he'd worked on for the BBC, known as End of Days. Yes, and being the nice chap that he is, Chris suggested that we have his producer, Kieran Tracy, along too. So we've got the pair of them for you today. So End of Days is an eight-episode podcast from late 2018, looking at the Waco, Texas siege and deaths of 86 people, including children and four government agents. In particular, the podcast focuses on the British victims who were lured to the Texan compound by cult leader David Koresh and some of his most loyal followers from church groups in the UK. Kieran and Chris spoke to a number of members of the victims' families to learn about how they ended up in Texas and the events that followed. Some of it is tough and perplexing to listen to, not least because of the opaque religious doctrines deployed by men such as Livingston Fagan, Fagan lost his wife, mother, and many friends after leaving the compound before the final showdown with government authorities, and he still believes that Koresh will return. Yeah, so uh, Kieran and Chris talked to us about their experiences and challenges when producing the podcast, including when they visited Mount Carmel and the town of Waco. Okay, let's hear from them now, shall we? Okay, let's start the tape, please. <laughs> Kieran Tracy and Chris Warburton, uh, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Metapod. You're here to talk to us about End of Days, and it's a very warm welcome back to Chris mm. Warburton, almost a year to the day that we published our very first episode, and you were our very first guest when you uh, came to talk to us about Ecstasy, the Battle of Rave. So welcome back, and welcome uh, for the first time, Kieran. We appreciate your time. Thanks for being well, here. thank you. Thank you. And it's great to be back. And it was an honor to be your first guest. And it's amazing how many episodes you've done since then. I mean, not much has happened in the world, really. No, it's been then, pretty quiet. It? It's been pretty quiet. Indeed, <laughs> well, so. really right. OK. And we said right at the end of that interview, we would love you to come back and talk to us about End of Days. And here you are. And you said, I'd like to bring Kieran along as well. So yeah. here you both are. Right. OK. It's been three years since uh, End of Days was published. And as we all know, we know a lot has happened in those intervening, certainly the last two years. Let me ask you both, and actually we'll start with you, Kieran. I mean, what immediately comes to mind now when you think back to that podcast? The honest answer to that is that um, it was the type of podcast that I feel um, was possible to do then that would be very hard to do now. I don't mean that no one would follow that journalism or no one would follow that idea. But what I do mean is that, you know, the podcasting, buying and creating landscape has changed unbelievably in these three years. The idea of letting two, I mean, frankly, two at the time BBC staff members just go and do that. It would be harder to do now, not just because of the BBC, but just because of the nature of what it takes to do verite, on location, podcast journalism. So that's what I think has changed. I think you've moved in the podcast landscape to a much greater focus on well-scripted narrative or, or commentary, you know, as a bigger piece of the eventual audio pie. Yep. And so I think on-location stuff is incredibly, you know, it's hard, it's expensive, and it takes time, and it's risky. So at this point in the podcasting culture, 
when it's very much more of a you know process driven and you know product driven um, life cycle, I think it's harder to do that. Maybe Chris has different thoughts on the actual story and how he feels about that, but that's what I feel is different in Podcastville anyway. See. Yeah. Kieran's getting weighed down by the commissioning process. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's so true. This is what's being illustrated by that answer. <laughs> I think what has changed, I think when we were making it, I just thought, wow, this is a, a brilliant story, right? And Kieran came to me with the idea. I had obviously heard of Waco. Uh, I knew to a degree in the way that most people know to a degree what happened. And as we were telling it, I was just thinking, wow, this is this is going to be brilliant, you know, and it's it, it's it's real gold. When I look back now, a few years on, I actually look back on it with a lot more pride than I probably anticipated I would uh, during the time that we were making it. And the reason for that is because it was an incredibly original piece of journalism, which came from Kieran, and I'm sure he'll explain where that came from and the response you get from people when you say, oh, well, you know Waco. In fact, pe people fit into three categories. They've even never heard of Waco and therefore this is a brand new experience for them in total. They've either heard of Waco, said, yeah, of course, yeah, I, I remember David Koresh and yeah, yeah, I remember that. But they don't know about the British element. And yeah. that that was the majority of people, I think. And then there was a, a smaller category that, that knew about Waco and, and knew about the British uh, element as well. But those many, many people who have said to us, I thought I knew everything there was to know about this thing, you know, but in fact, you've told me a completely different element of the story and you've done right. it really well. That to me is what generated the pride in the journalism and storytelling. And so I look back on the piece and I think, you know, Kieran and I have both got a great deal of pride about what we made. And that's my thoughts. And I think I'll probably always look back on it in, in, in the same way. Okay, so and that kind of leads me to my next question, really. And and Kieran, you first again, please. Wendy and I were talking about this earlier on today when we were kind of planning this interview, and we were trying to remember what our memories of Waco when it happened were. And they're kind of dusty building in the distance on fire, tanks going in, you know, ATF, FBI, et cetera, et cetera. But a little hazy. I mean, Kieran, what were your kind of recollections at the time? What camp did you fall into that Chris just mentioned there? Exactly the same as yourself. I, I remember the vivid imagery. I remember David Koresh. I always had that name kicking about my head. And, and of course, his face, you know, was always in, 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 in the back of your mind in the pop culture. I mean, 93, you know, what just after like LA riots, Gulf War One, all that stuff, Clinton, Bob Dill, Ross Perot, all that stuff. So you have this sort of or like, you know, Terminator 2 that, that you know, wrestling and things like that that was the culture at that moment for me as you know a, a young teenager or whatever and um but there was this dark weird thing with a big fireball over in america that i was you know didn't quite fully grasp obviously except knowing that david koresh was some you know bad guy I'd, i mean i obviously hadn't a clue any uh, britons were involved um it came back into my life in a weird um kind of way i kind of come from a heavy metal background and there happened to be a heavy metal band that i liked at a particular time and they had used a sample at the start of one of their songs and it was all about David Koresh. And um, it was actually, I later found out, it was taken from the congressional hearings in the Waco. But it, okay. it must have planted a seed in my mind again, maybe in my 20s or something like that, that kept that seed there going, what was that evil that is clearly there to, to, to plumb in storytelling terms? So in the camp, I knew nothing about um, the specifics of Waco other than Big Fireball in a dusty backwater. And that was that was me before I fully clocked the the british story yeah and you and you chris what category of your own making there did you fall into yeah i mean i was a teenager and i remember you know it, it struck me as being one of the first stories and kieran mentioned the gulf war as well then it, you know one of those first stories that really we were getting not necessarily absolutely in real time as you would get these days but certainly in the evening news from america or that kind of mm. cnn the beginning of the cnn culture uh, of rolling news and what have you. And, um, you know, the world was a much smaller place then, wasn't it, in terms of news and connectivity and being on the spot and all the rest of it. And so it was that combination of, oh, okay, we can actually follow this story from overseas as it happens to a degree. And it just felt like 
only this would be happening in America <laughs> as well. That that was what struck me. I thought, oh yeah, that's that's a kind of American thing. Uh, but like you say, as soon as you got to the end and it was the disastrous end of the whole thing, I had no idea of the debates around government overreach and you know the the constitutional issues that came up in terms of freedom of expression, freedom to bear arms, all that kind of stuff. And and it's only as you as you get older and you start engaging more with the story, you understand how there's this almost line of the events from there to you know, almost to Trump and the Tea Party and all of that kind of stuff. You follow a very sort of curvy line to get there. But, you know, you have no idea of that when you're first engaging with that story. And it's, and it's weird because you have those memories of sitting on the sofa and watching it in my mum's house when I was growing up. And then a gap of absolutely ages before I engaged with it again and had a completely different understanding of it. Yeah. I'd just like to congratulate you both for surviving that eerie prediction in the last episode of the series and for coming back three years on to talk about the podcast today. So It's good to be here. <laughs> <laughs> what a relief. I know. And and I'd like to say my memories, uh, I was about 18 at the time, and it was just constantly on television to the point where it's like, what are the wackos doing today? And having revisited this through the podcast, I have taken up an interest in, in Janet Reno's role in this, which I think I was completely unaware of, um, sadly, until recently. And that's quite interesting. So so thank you for that. I'm curious, at the time, uh, Kieran, you were talking about just the process of making a podcast back in 2017 or 18. When you were speaking with people, did they understand what a podcast was at the time? That's a really good question. Probably not because, um, you know, the, the culture was still, I mean, obviously, you know, radio people and all that um, and early adopters had been, you know, devouring pods from what, you know, 2013, 14 or whatever. I, I would have thought that given the age of a lot of the people that we were talking to who were probably in their 50s you know these people were in their 20s and 30s when waco happened so you know by the time me and chris get to talk to everyone they're maybe in their 50s um mm -hmm. 60s it, it's not unlikely it's not something we sort of chewed over i mean we would have probably just approached it as a series of uh, you know a documentary series an audio documentary yeah. series um i don't think we would have majored on the fact that it would be a podcast i think nowadays i think people you know, probably would grasp that. But I, I would wonder even nowadays that people would fully, fully get it. No. So no is the, is the clear answer. No, we didn't. Was there anything particular that characterized the look back from people on the US side or the UK side? Um, I think on the UK side, I think a fair amount of, of, of just um, bafflement. But on the UK side, I think people didn't quite appreciate the role of one particular church that was okay. um in the uk and, and remains in the uk and worldwide but pe people i don't think um i think that would have been their only point to lock on to in this i think the thing for me and frankly i'll just say it because the majority of the dead were, were black in britain right i think they were treated as not really worthy of the serious um attention and i think yeah. that's something we tried to bring out in the podcast chris yeah. you can obviously pick that no, up i i i 100 agree i think if uh if this had been a group of, of white people i think the majority of this country would um know of their deaths <laughs> the, the the fact that you know we had to bring it to people's attention 25 years later says an awful lot uh, and I think in terms of the way it looked back, that spoke volumes when we started approaching people uh, who were directly connected as well, because I think for a lot of them, they hadn't ever actually had the opportunity to talk in the way that they had to us. I mean, perhaps people like uh, Livingston Fagan, who was, you know, as an individual, much more intimately connected to David Koresh and therefore becomes... Uh, a more interesting proposition to some people who want to tell the story more closely to Koresh, then, then I get it. But in terms of some of the other people, if you think of people like George and Dimplitz Taylor, for example, I don't, they'd never been approached to tell their story before. And so, you know, being given the opportunity to do so uh, and feeling that they were being 
in good hands to do so as well. I think they saw as an opportunity to go on the record that they probably were never going to have again or before. But if you contrast that with the American experience, you've got to remember virtually everybody we spoke to was to do with the event or were residents of Waco. And when we turned up to Waco, it was more a case of, ugh, this again, of course it is, you know, it's such a, mm-hmm. a, a blot mm-hmm. on that city. And so when you talk to some of the people, it's with a fair degree of resignation, I suppose. But then again, and, and maybe a question of why are you going over this again? But when we explained, they began to have a, a bit better uh, understanding of why we were scratching at that uh, particular pimple again. Did it that- take a while to get rid of any reluctance or, or to create buy-in? I think with any story like this, I mean, it's just a journey of trust. Yeah. And um, I don't think there's anything particularly special about Waco. I think when you're dealing with any, you know, intensely personal story, it just takes time. It's as simple as that. There's no, there's no I, shortcut. I also think with, you know, what, what if if we had only been interested in trying to speak to people like um, Livingston Fagan or, or Sam Henry, who obviously went through absolutely tragic situation. But again, Sam is someone who is, who is, told his story many times before but when we were able to say look we've spoken to these people we've spoken to these people people that hadn't necessarily had an opportunity in the past then it becomes a bit of a domino effect really because other people turn around and say oh you you really are committed to telling this properly and 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 that that can be a real sign of what you're trying to achieve i suppose and building the kind of trust that um, that you need to tell a story like this i i'm always curious i mean I'm, I'm a journalist myself and you always try and distance yourself from whatever kind of story you're writing or producing or whatever did you have any kind of personal reluctance to the subject matter or any concerns about the way you were going to tackle it no um i think we i think the more chris might learned about it the more uh, i mean emboldened would be my take right. on it for everything that chris just said a couple of answers ago absolutely emboldened to tell it not reluctant at all because i think well the, the, the chief antagonist is dead so you can't hold him to account right so that right. If, if, if you had to have been dealing with the chief antagonist to get him on board to convince that person to have their place in it you know as in situations now where you might want someone who's living to be to answer to be held to account you would there'd be a lot more negotiation and you know the dance you know Livingston was as close as we got to that because obviously he was you know the only um, convicted branch Davidian that we talked to um, albeit that he wasn't the instigator that that could have been difficult it would have had its own difficulties but again that's part and parcel of journalism 101 as well so um, no no reluctance or, or no no um no but at the heart of it again it's it's the same with all of these things it's the it's the responsibility of making sure that you are getting everything absolutely right you know the level of accuracy required particularly when you're putting something together which you know is um what's the best way of putting this you know, you, you don't want people to turn around and say they didn't get it right. And this is this is on the record for our loved ones, ultimately. Right. Uh, and there's a responsibility there, which you have to manage really carefully. I felt that throughout the podcast, in some of the conversations, there's this sort of stop phrase, I guess, that people use where there's clearly a misunderstanding or there's not a persuasion happening and that's you've got to understand and then it proceeds to a explanation of the scripture often where does it leave understanding i mean i guess in you must have heard a lot of conversations like that and where where do you go from there i think the answer to that is that chris interviews for a living it's you know it's his day job he 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 has a finite amount of time to get to the gist of things right so when we, and he has to do that under the pressure of being heard by, you know, the nation, as it were. So when we approach dealing with people who are, have a, have a carapace of a narrative that they have, right? So they have shielded themselves in this almost impenetrable narrative to get them, you know, everybody needs a narrative. We all have this, you know, we're all the same. But when you've got like a big story and that's your protection, actually the skill of just saying right we're just we're just stopping for a second here what we're telling you what we're asking you is this follows you know and we need to know we actually just need to know and i can remember a couple of occasions when we had very very long long-winded exchanges and interviews and actually there comes a point where you have to talk turkey and i i mean maybe chris could sort of well i just remember when we were interviewing livingston fagan uh which went on for about four hours he would repeatedly say 
in answer, he'd say, in order to answer that question, Chris, we have to go back 2000 years. And mm. I would be asking him a quite simple question about what was happening on a particular day in Waco, you know, and normally when you're asking people those kind of questions, you want to get a feel for the color, the experience, you know, you're getting people to, to be the eyes and ears and giving that description. But, you know, he's done those kind of interviews a million and one times. And he came to our podcast with a quite clear agenda of wanting to, and I'm using that word advisedly, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to say, you know, in, in a pejorative sense necessarily, but he came with an agenda of, of wanting to put across his interpretation of scripture above all else, really. And so when he sort of felt that he was being pulled down to answer questions once again about, oh, what, what happened on that day? We all know what happened on that day. That would sort of be his attitude. I want to tell you in a more spiritual sense. But as an interviewer, you're sitting there thinking, okay, but that's not going to be a huge amount of use to our listenership or our understanding of the story, quite frankly. So he would start his answers by saying, in order to answer that question, though, we have to go back 2,000 years. And I would think, we really don't. <laughs> and, and please, let's not. Because it just came very, very difficult. But, you know, there were quite a few interviews along those lines which which went down the path yeah. of, of really complex um, you know, interpretation of the Bible and such. So I can, sometimes that was quite useful and I think needed within the storytelling of the whole podcast in general. Do you not think, Kieran? Because actually sometimes, you know, we're talking about this, you know, <laughs> the cult was built on David Koresh's interpretation of scripture. And most people look in at that and think, what's all this about? And to have people almost tying themselves in knots as they're trying to explain it to you highlights an awful lot of what that was all about. The, the total duality of that is that Chris has highlighted Livingstone there, who was Im impenetrable on, on matters of scripture, you know, in terms of getting normal answers. But on the same side, a lot of the people who lost their loved ones still retain the same analysis. They have the same faith, even after everything. And they couch that experience in those same terms. So it's not just that, you know, we're talking about a person who was, you know, a bit of a challenge for us being full of this, um, st you know, stop what you've got to understand is that was also the case for people who had suffered tremendous anguish that we can't even imagine because they too, they're still, you know, that's the life they have lived. And it's not up to us to um, gain say that it's just the life they have lived. Um, and I think the only other answer to that question is, you know, the detail of the research, before an interview you just have to strategize interviews like that and, and to know your absolute gems in the thickets that open up a direct line to the heart or a direct line to the memory as opposed yeah. to the brain and we, and, we I, and you know that's our job there was a point where <coughs> livingston and i, I know, it must have been about three hours in wasn't there but there is a point where we start getting a bit fed up with each other uh he's uh, and and i think there was i can't remember the exact exchange but he said no chris i i have to I have to say this, and I, I kind of said, no, you, you don't, you don't, because I'm just getting, it got a bit fraught, didn't it's, it, Kieran? It, it's quite uh, tense moment? to listen to those moments. I haven't listened back to it for ages. No. I will one day, but it was it was tense in my memory as well. Yeah. well I, 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 don't, I don't, sorry, I, I just related to that if I can. I mean, I don't want to pry into your own upbringings and backgrounds, but did you learn anything through their interpretation of the scripture when they were trying to explain things that you just thought, Okay, that's an interesting point. I don't necessarily agree with it, but I didn't know that that was portrayed in these ancient texts. The the point is a lot of, and I, look, <coughs> I'm, I'm I'm no expert on the Bible, but I know that the books Livingston etc. would lean towards, are like the Book of Revelations, the or Revelation, the Book of Daniel, which in biblical terms I understand are pretty impenetrable parts of the bible anyway so but i don't want to get too much into that because i you know i don't have a good enough understanding but i think even 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 people who might not have a particular reason to interpret it in a particular way would still find it quite difficult to explain to you what it's all about is that reasonable kieran you know the bible better than me <laughs> barely but i mean i suppose the only thing that opened my mind to was um i mean again i'm not 
I'm not up on my Bible uh, that much, but I do come from a place where people kill each other over um, religion. So, you know, there is that. But I suppose what struck me from a religious point of view about all of this and the total focus on those books that Chris mentioned as the map and structure of their understanding of things, I just thought it was really zany that we never heard once about Jesus or like the New Testament or any like of stuff about, you know, check out your neighbor. Don't uh, kill anybody. Don't take your neighbor's wife. You know, all that New Testament stuff was nowhere in this story. It's all highly, it's a very literal taking on some highly spooky, you know, impenetrable, you know, fantastical um, stuff from the early pages of the, the, the Old Testament. I'm not saying that's wrong. It's, 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 I just find that they're very different things, Old Testament, New Testament. And all of this story is centered in the old one. Yeah, and I find that really weird. And, and look, just to underline the fact we are not here to make a judgment on no, right. anybody else's, any, anybody's interpretation of, of those books. It's just, you know, all the Bible in general. It was just that that was kind of what we were up against a lot of the time. You know, it, it's quite difficult to argue the toss on any of those points. And in fact, if you do start to try to do that, then you're not exactly providing a great service to your listener. You know, yeah. it, it's obviously a part of the story, but it's not something that you want to get into the long grass with. Back to that tension that I think is felt in certain episodes, um, and I think it comes mainly through you, Chris. I'm just curious, and this, I guess this is a question for Kieran, is what was it like to witness that? And did you need to mediate or be that that person in the room who is the buffer? Um, I, well, I don't want to quote Spinal Tap. Um, <laughs> you know that bit in Spinal Tap where he describes himself as lukewarm water? You know that? Um, <laughs> but I think um, I'm... So I, I come from... Um, I come from being a reporter with a producer behind me and I come from being a producer with having had many reporters in front of me and, and I've, I've learned just just write it. Um, I, of course, I'm sitting there with a billion, you know, any producer sits with a billion questions. They want to, oh, say this, this, this. <laughs> but me and Chris know each other very well now in terms of, you know, the way interviews go. Um, so, no, no, I, I was I was I was happy to let that whole, ex- you know, that that whole exchange is a real thing and it doesn't need any further intervention actually at certain points you know apart actually there was one minute when not, not to constantly focus on Livingston but there was one moment when he did say David Koresh is coming back um, oh, yeah. and Chris and I were both like hang on what and I think mm. both of us just blurted out hang on he's coming well, back are you, are you serious you know so <laughs> yeah. there are moments one can't help oneself but to be a foil in those situations yes is necessary because I, I, I can hear what he is saying and I've read a lot of what he's referring to and all that stuff. So yes, yeah. that's important for trust, not, not on a, a tactical or a conniving level, but just, sure. just to actually understand what someone's trying to say. And also know? there's pressure for me in that respect, because, you know, Kieran's such a, a, an excellent and, and diligent journalist and producer. The, you know, if, if I'm there and I'm making a hash of the whole thing, then that's not going to be particularly comfortable when we walk out of the room and get in the car and I'm saying... You know, and, and all all kind of presenters and hosts need uh, a bit of reassurance from time to time. And I'm no different if I'm saying to Kieran, "Was that okay? Do you think that was all right? Did I ask the right stuff?" You know, you want to feel that when he says yes, he means it. Is there anything that you would go back and do differently now, now that you've had some time to reflect on it? No, no. I, I just I think Chris said at the start, it's just pride the re- the remaining um you know sense of it all. Um, I, I I was thinking this over the other day, right? And I was thinking, right, what am I going to say to these guys? And something we haven't really discussed so much is that um, actually Waco being in Waco, aside from Mount Carmel, right? Yeah, it was no sure thing. We were plotting about Waco, not getting much sense out of anybody. You know, and, and I remember walking about on like day two going like, we have nothing here. I mean, we genuinely don't have anything. Uh, we'd talk to a few, you know, what do you call Vox Pops and radio? You know, we'd, yeah, we'd yeah, have yeah. a bit of that. Wasn't, you know, it wasn't really substantive. And then just, things... Not just started. on that, Kieran, is that because you were just coming along talking about the story again? And Well, it- well, we try not to. I mean, we try to be smarter than that. And we had a, another production colleague um, back at base who'd set us up some wonderful people. It's just yeah. that trying to communicate that place, actually, we were finding it wasn't really coming our way. And then stuff just started happening. You know, we met a guy, we went out to lunch with this lovely old couple that bought us lunch and stuff like that. Didn't make it into the pod, but the gates started opening. Things started opening. Chris found the guitar shop where Koresh used to go down and play. We went there. It was weird. Um, 
and stuff just started tumbling. And oh, and the on the last the night, we got the one remaining Branch Davida, and her name was Sheila, Sheila Martin, yeah. who was yeah. in the room when the bullets started yeah. coming through the glass. Now, that only happened. We, we were exhausted, and we were ready to go home. That happened at, like, the 11th hour, and it wasn't planned. So my memory is actually, sheesh, we nearly, this nearly couldn't have been brilliant, you know? Yeah. But, and also, you know. she was in the room when, when Sam Henry came over, when it was only his daughter, uh, Sam Henry, who, who lost his entire family in Waco. Yeah. It was uh, Sam who came over, and he came over to try to persuade her to come back, failed. But he was recollecting to us the conversation he was having with David Koresh, the argument he was having with David Koresh, basically saying, persuade my daughter to come back to the UK with me. But Sheila Martin was in the room as well. And so had her own recollections and obviously remembered it in a different way to Sam. And Kieran produced that sequence beautifully. It kind of went, you know, Sam, Sheila, Sam, Sheila. And it was it was magic. But I think it's, it's the same with all the podcasts you do. You, you set out with your hopes and ambitions and your wish list of people who you'd really rather speak to. You don't know if those things are going to happen. And I think it was when we went to speak to Devon Elliott, who lost his sister and his aunt, uh, in Waco, um, it was after we interviewed him in a, in a, it was like in a primary school, was it, or secondary school? Mm-hmm. Um, and we left there and we looked at each other and we went, "We're yeah. off." You yeah. know, yeah. you get that first one in the can and you think, "All right, okay, a few more like that," and and we're, mm-hmm. we're going. Mm-hmm. You know, you think of um, <laughs> I'd just forgotten when when we were in Waco as well, and we went to the bar to meet Jimbo Ward, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, who, you remember, he, he was damned with David Koresh. And um, we didn't know what to expect when we got to this bar. It's almost impossible to picture yourself in that bar now. You know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I've forgotten it. that. I, I mean, it was so mad. And then Jimbo had some disagreements with people in the bar, so wasn't happy to speak to us in the bar. So we went back to his house. And um, it was a, a kind of mess of CDs and DVDs, just chaos, wasn't it? And then he was went into Judas Priest and, and Kieran, he's got this phenomenal metal background. So we started having a few beers and doing the interviews and stuff before I knew it. These two are both like, ah, yeah, Judas Priest. <laughs> I was just sitting there thinking, what is going on here? <laughs> it, it, was an, it was an extraordinary trip. I, I don't think, I mean, Chris had found Jimbo. Um, I think he'd maybe talked to what, like one, did you find him in like one magazine or something? Or had he yeah, ever? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's yeah, what, I mean, such yeah. an incredible, whoever asked Jimbo Ward what he thought about Waco and yet it went right to the core of everything yeah. about this, you know, egotistical, narcissistic, you loser, know. Loser, man. Loser, man. You know, and just yeah. like, I mean, you can't, you just have to go on the journey, you know. That's it. That's it. You visit Mount Carmel in one of the final episodes. I just wondered what that was like. I mean, people talk about going to visit places for tourism. You were going there for a story. But here you are in the grounds of a place. Take us right back to the beginning of our interview, our recollections at the time of this place on fire and tanks. What was it like actually being there? I found it very, very difficult as a reporter on the spot. And, you know, I've kind of done every story under the sun really and turned up and described what's going on and been the eyes and ears of uh, uh, of the people who are listening but the problem was it's it's utterly nondescript you know you're, you're not looking at the thing that we've just been talking about because of the obvious reasons that it was burnt to the ground um, so there's a small chapel there. There's some small houses that I remember. There was a, a driveway running up. There was a big lake, a big field. That was pretty much it. But I just remember, and I think as well, because we had been through such a, a long and involved process, I felt real pressure to kind of find the words and do it right. And I just wasn't getting there. And I found it really, really difficult. And then I was overthinking it. And... I was poor that day, man. And then <laughs> and I, I sort of, I, it pains me to remember it in that way. But I just think I was slightly overwhelmed by what we needed to do and how little in front of me there was to do it, if that makes any sense. It, it's not the same place, you know. And, and how often are you in that situation where you're there to describe something which is central to your storytelling, but it isn't anything like what it has been in the story 
if that yeah, you, does that make sense yeah and you describe where you went into a particular room and forgive me if i'm describing this wrong but you're saying oh there's like a lectern here and then there's yeah. a picture and i was quite surprised at that detail was still not still there but that's obviously been put back in by branch davidians i mean that must have been a little strange kieran almost. that was very strange i mean i felt exactly the same as chris you know the clock is ticking you're losing daylight and there's literally nothing there the first day we went it was scorching hot the second day we went it was bitterly cold in the space of 24 hours and you know they say that that's what happens out there you know it, <laughs> both are difficult especially if you've brought someone down and you know you need to talk to them and then you need to get off and do something else. We went into that house and that to me was one of the spookier parts of it. Um, I say spooky, that it's an unhelpful word, but it, I felt a vibe that I didn't like. Um, yeah. I guess there was this little pamphlet, which was just a really rubbish Xeroxed photocopied um, sheet of, of the people that had died. But instinctively I was like, right, there's the Britons have to be on there. So I went and saw some and, it had a few details I'd never heard before and stuff. And I thought, oh, this is, this is gold. I've never, you know, didn't know about this uh, names and things like that, but, but that was it. And just the portrait on the wall to try and invoke that, I thought I had to become the mission. But the, the only other thing I could think of was those um, really the foundations of the place are the only things that are left mm-hmm. there and a pretty, you know, a concrete basin that was a swimming pool. It feels macabre, you know, because we all know what happened. Uh, it's, it's literally the only thing there. Um, an odd person turned up, you know, quite at random that Chris and I were able to talk to. I can't really remember. Uh, he was he was apparently a branch Davidian. I'm not so certain. I think it was a bit of shilling and things like that. I'm not so sure. There's a bunch of odd. You know, there are a lot of yeah, odd. The, the whole you setup know. there was odd. A lot of odd. There was a really kind of utterly kind of tired feeling about the whole unimpressive yeah. um, memorial to the people who had lost their lives as well. Right. And you know, the odd. Ugh, I don't want to say tourist, but you know. The odd person was showing up to have a look. The whole place was just decidedly odd and just put you on edge. And, um, you know, you walk in. I remember that bloody dog as well. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Going for us. Yeah. It's weird. This is just, yeah. And I I don't know. I just didn't, I found it very difficult to kind of rise to the occasion. That was the, that was the point. I'm hoping you've got different answers. Um, I'm interested in what you found to be the most unsettling part of either your investigation or the final podcast. And I'll give you my answer first. And it was in the very first episodes when you're talking about the churches in the UK and people coming over and just that kind of concentration of both scriptures and everything else as it kind of came together. I found that more unsettling than some of the later bits when you're talking about the the long siege, four or five weeks, I think the siege was, and some of the stuff after that. Do you have perspective on what you found most unsettling in the stories? You want me to go first? I think, yeah, I, I think I, te- I tend to agree with, with you in a way, but I think it was more when it was these astonishing situations which were happening in settings that we recognise and understand in the UK. You know, this wasn't some mm. far off situation that we remembered from CNN and all that kind of stuff on the other side of the planet. This yeah. was people in a residential house who were being talked at, persuaded, brainwashed yeah. for hours on end. And to go outside that house, like you're talking about in the first episode, at the very, very beginning of the whole thing, I think that was a real kind of, okay, this this could have been happening anywhere then, because this yeah. is just a kind of semi-detached, nothing kind of house. And yeah, I did find that idea that it could have just been happening under your nose is pretty disturbing. Yes, the seeds of the story are perhaps... Yeah. For me, the most unsettling. Kieran, sure. do, you, do you have a same opinion? Or yeah, I mean, I, I suppose you, you do encounter things. You know, one listens to war journalists and stuff, and I mean, you, you know, I don't know how they, I just don't know how they function. But um, I, I just found, uh, unfortunately, we had to wade through a lot of the um, coronial material, and um, you can't avoid seeing things. And I, I don't, I'm sure I don't need to detail, but it was a horrendous end for a lot of people. And frankly, you don't have to look very far when all that stuff is just. Um, you know, offered up to you by the internet. I, I really found that quite difficult. Um, so b- because at that time we were talking, we were learning more and more and more and more about these quite quite brilliant people. And then I have to read these awful, you know, coronial sort of elements. So 
I, that's maybe not the question you're asking, but that's probably the answer I have, if you know what I mean. I know Janet Reno has taken some level of response, or she did take some level of responsibility for this incident. Did you have the sense that the families of the British victims felt that was sufficient or that they received an apology from the UK government that was sufficient? I no, I will um, just say it has been a couple of years since I've been in, both of us, I'm sure, have been in the thickets of all of this, but I'm pretty sure the answer is no. <laughs> um, I don't think any apology could suffice. And I, I mean, I don't know what the official outcomes, I, my memory has gone. I do remember we interviewed the ambassador to the US at the time or someone who was in the diplomatic corps at the time, Lord Rennick. Again, I'll come back to that first thing that we said about these British victims being fundamentally overlooked. Um, they, they did get a coronial process in the UK. They did get that. And their, you know, their experiences were explored for you know what, whatever it was, a week, two weeks in a UK court. But other than that, I mean, they not really taken... I, I, you know, I didn't get the sense that they really feel that... Um, and I don't want to speak on their behalf at all. No, I'm just going right. by my own judgment. The engagement with the state, as in the UK government, didn't really seem to be something they had a major recollection of which seems remarkable mm -hmm. <laughs> given the circumstances. Yeah. But no, I, 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 like I say, I, I don't want to go too much into um, talking on, on their behalf and getting things wrong. Is that an element that you hoped listeners would tune into and maybe question and want to know more about why there wasn't more state responsibility taken? Of course we want people to listen and think, what the hell allowed this catastrophic misjudgment and catastrophic outcome. But actually, as far as US governance and agencies and executions of, of you know, big, big situations like that, that's a level of detail that I think the British audience doesn't quite have the sort of background to digest easily, nor do I. I have to say it took me months of research to find out, you know, ATF is controlled by this, you know, it's, it's this org chart of mess that con contributed to Waco. We tried to explain it briefly in the pod. Um, and yes, people should should be alive to like, how could that ever, ever happen? In terms of accountability, I'm not certain that was our goal. We wanted simply to say, you're going to get to know these people yeah. because they were people. Uh, in terms of accountability, Chris, sorry. No, no, I was just going to say, I think with all, all the stuff that Kieran and I have done, I think you have to be very clear at the start as to the story that you are telling. Um, and, you know, Every single time we would say to each other when we were scripting, when we were working out the, the pace and flow of episodes and the content of episodes, it would be, hang on, hang on, let's bring it back to the British people, bring it back to the British story, bring it back to what is new in this to our listeners, right? You know, we are not retelling everything that happened in Waco, right? Mm -hmm. Because we would have been there it would be another 10 episodes if we were going to continue to tell it in the same kind of detail that we went into with the British story. So, you know, we obviously gave the key points in the story of Waco when it came to the siege and when it came to the final events. But, you know, you, you could go into so much more detail. And we were very aware of that. And likewise, the ramifications that could be another six part podcast mm -hmm. maybe we'll do it one day but like i said that line from you know g perceived government overreach by some people to uh, the oklahoma bombings a couple of years later which you know that there's there's no coincidence that that was the day that was chosen to you know more recent events you know pe people who um, who believe firmly that government has overreached in, in those same things that they believe they overreached in in Waco. But, you know, like I said, we, we can, we hinted it, we give a little bit of detail, but we were very clear that that wasn't entirely the story that we were there to tell. Yeah. Do you think, you know, it's a very much a story of a time and a place, obviously, and it was pre-access to mass information and mass media and internet and et cetera, et cetera. Do you sense the story would have unfolded in a different way? And I'm not talking about your story within the podcast. I'm just talking about now the Waco incident in more modern times. So maybe the people that would have been there would have been better informed as to what was going on on the outside, for example. OK, we might 
we're on we're in the middle of a siege here we should probably try and escape there was there's the talk of the the, the one person that did that's in the podcast i mean i just wonder i i'm not sure and perhaps doubt whether such an incident one could go on for so long because maybe law enforcement has changed its practices since but just people's access to information would have forced different people's hands now there'd be different dynamics i'm sure we'll see something similar in the next five years you know um 10 years maybe i mean look I don't think access to information gives people better decision-making potential in the current <laughs> setting, I would just say. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you know, we've seen, the, you know, I'm not comparing the capital to Waco. Yep. I'm not doing that. I'm simply saying that when people believe in a thing, information flow becomes a tool, not a, not a um, sorting device. David Koresh would be in a, a media colossus in, in, in the nowadays telling this story with his own ways of using media and his followers mm-hmm. would would do the same thing and i'm sure people being people make blunders and you know i i don't think it's unlikely at all actually it, do, it does kind of lead us to ask them really i mean what is the lasting legacy of waco all we wanted to say was the legacy we want to give is for those people that died because they did not have a voice um a, a terrible journalistic cliche but nobody yeah. knew who they were nobody knew what they did nobody knew what they sounded like or what their thoughts were what their lives were like our only goal was to say here is the story of those good people who were deceived and you should know them you make your own judgments but you should know them and that was it yeah so maybe not lasting legacy then chris but you know what lessons do you think have been learned whether it's by governments whether it's by the way the media interpret events as they're unfolding almost if you gave me a month to sit down and write a thesis on it i probably could give it a good go but uh (laughs) cobbling together a reasonable answer uh in this kind of situation, I I don't think we'd quite be uh, doing it justice. And I'm sorry, that's not a cop out. I just think it's a it's a incredibly involved question, which um, you know pulls apart all of the dynamics between federal and state government in America, and right and left. And you know, there, there's so much that you could throw into the pot that I don't feel entirely qualified to give you a suitable answer okay. <laughs> that's why i'm better at asking the questions you see Here's maybe i would a- say i would add though um i i know that so we've um joshed about you know sort of going over to waco and stuff like that and i i can imagine that after listening to the you know the the you know it's, it's a heavy enough podcast right and people might think uh, why are you guys sort of you know a couple of years down the line are you you know chatting about this and it's all fun and games and stuff when you know when journalists go to difficult places you know you do what gets you through you have fun in order you know to get the stuff you need to get and tell the story you know you travel you know stuff happens you keep yourself sane our primary the legacy i would want from this is to know that every person who spoke to us everyone no matter whether we give them a hard time or we give them you know you know more space or or, I, i just want them to know that we were you know on a level with them and that we wanted to do the right thing by them all and i mean them all and that's the legacy i wanted but we have you know we talk about it we laugh our fond memories and stuff but this was a really important thing that we did for them i think and um that's what i want to be remembered and also you know we were up to our neck in it and i don't mean in a kind of negative in trouble way i mean (laughs) it it dominated our lives for you know the best part of a year yeah. Each day you wake up, you'd be like, okay, right now it's mm-hmm. now it's this and that. And that's because there was a, a certain complexity to it all, obviously, in terms of the narratives, in terms of the storytelling, but also in doing the right thing by the people we spoke to in the way that Kieran's describing and, and, and a kind of duty of care to a lot of those people that we spoke to as well, which was kind of time-consuming uh, to kind of manage their expectations and what we wanted to do in terms of honouring their story. Um, I like to ask about the podcast artwork. Is there a story behind the picture that you chose there? I mean, there is that iconic image of him. So I have to give credit to a, a work colleague called Natasha, who I think uh, got the coloration on, on that. So I, I had done a version that was blue. And I had tried to, I think I did an early version where it had like the Lone Star behind him and maybe the British, I might have had a Union Jack or something behind him to, to try and say, oh, you know, what's the Union Jack doing there behind David Koresh? But I did, I think I come up with putting some Bible stuff behind him, but my colleague Natasha actually, I think, got that coloration. And I, I, as soon as I saw it, I was like, you know, that's it. No questions asked. I think I was, I tried to be really, really specific about the imagery, you know, that we developed to get it. So I remember sitting researching, you know, dusty Americana, 
you know, the, the, the water towers and the rickety uh, windmills and things like that and saying to my colleagues, look, this is, you know, you have to be enticed to listen to this and, you know, we want to give um, a sound experience that's more than just the story, which is why we use earth, you know, as the music. It's got that beautiful dark Americana. So because it all brings you where you need to go um, and the art does that too. And I really, truly feel that that art has stood the test of time. I really, really do. So I was thrilled. I'm, I'm sorry we have to use the man who is the cause of so much absolute misery um, as the focal point. It shouldn't be that way, but that's news, you know, unfortunately, that these people do become the, the, the figure point. So, yeah, I'm glad you like it. Um, I, I, I was over the moon with it. Well, as we're coming to the end, I just think it's worth saying I was a podcast listener and I used to listen to a football podcast once a week and some music ones. And it was listening to this three years ago that really kind of got me back into listening to history podcasts, true crime podcasts and more documentary things. So all credit oh, to you great. for bringing thank me back you. to the, really the podcast world. And really thank you to Chris Warburton and Kieran Tracy for joining us on Metapod to talk about End of Days. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, guys. So there we are. Very interesting to revisit this event. And many, many thanks to Kieran and Chris for joining us. Almost a year to the day since we talked to Chris about the Ecstasy Battle of Rave podcast, which we should note Kieran also worked on. Well, maybe they'll come back another time in the future after they've tackled another subject. Yeah, let's hope so. So please, guys, do another podcast and come back to us at Metapod. You've got an open invitation. Indeed they do. Okay, what's coming up next on Metapod over the next few episodes, Wendy? We've got two terrific music-related shows to share, Tape Notes with Radio X presenter John Kennedy and 60 Songs That Explain the 90s with music critic Rob Harvilla. Uh, Yes, both excellent podcasts, which we recommend you listen to as many episodes of theirs as you can ahead of our chats with them. In Machines We Trust from MIT Technology Review is another terrific show we'll feature on Metapod soon, and we'll be speaking with the show's host, Jennifer Strong. And there's plenty more over the coming months too. In the meantime, as always, if you like our show, then please leave a rating, hopefully a good one, or a review wherever you listen to us. We'd love to hear what you think, and it also helps others find us too. It does. Okay, so until the next episode, Mr. May. Okay, thanks everyone for tuning in, and we'll see you next time that's it for metapod this time thanks for listening metapod will be back soon with another unpacking of the web's most interesting podcasts but in the meantime make sure to subscribe at any of the usual places you find your other favorite podcasts we'd hate for you to miss upcoming episodes and we'd love it if you left us a review you can let us know what you think of this episode by going to metapodshow.com we'll see you next time Metapod is produced by Wendy Morrill and Kevin May.